This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Depending on how it impacted your life, it might seem like the video of George Floyd's death went public just yesterday. Or maybe it felt like it was a very long time ago. It was, in fact, back in May when Floyd was killed under the knee of a police officer after begging 16 times to be permitted to breathe. That was the same month that the sociologist Miles Moody earned his Ph.D. from the University of Kentucky. In the months since, Moody has been preparing for his first faculty job as an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. So at a time when the nation is focused on the plight of Black Americans in a way that just hasn't really happened since the civil rights movement, Moody, whose research centers on racial disparities, is headed to a city that is virtually synonymous with Black rights to try to help students make sense of the world they're entering. And one of the things that his students are going to learn from him is that while police brutality is at the forefront of many people's thoughts when it comes to the Black Lives Matter movement, that's not even close to the only place where disparities are claiming Black lives. Moody's research, for instance, is centered on disparities in health, and his previous work uses quantitative methods to examine how racism affects the health of Black Americans. Miles Moody, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for having me. Um, this is definitely a wonderful opportunity to discuss what's been going on with the uprising and other racial disparities and health outcomes for Black Americans. Miles, classes at the University of Alabama, Birmingham begin on August 24. That's fast approaching, but yes. the world's a really strange place right now. Have you made it down to Birmingham and are you starting to feel settled in? Yeah, um, I've actually been here for about three weeks now, which, you know, I was fortunate to be able to come down a little earlier and make sure that I got my bearings and, you know, the place kind of set up the way I need it to be. You know, like you said, it's definitely approaching quickly and we still don't quite know what, you know, what's going on with the virus and pandemic and how that might affect things moving forward as cases and hospitalizations continue to rise in Jefferson County. So there's a lot going on, but, you know, I'm excited for whatever, you know, whatever comes my way. Miles, sociology professors presumably work to try to help students, you know, make sense of society. And I'm wondering what it feels like to be moving into a faculty position in sociology at a university that rests at the heart of our nation's civil rights movement at a time like this in our history? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, you know, that's a great question. I think it's becoming even more apparent now than before, if that's even possible, that this is a very valuable opportunity for myself and, you know, others in the department there who do amazing work, you know, like you said, increasing students' awareness and understanding of the society in which we live. In fact, I think that's one of the main course objectives for the class I'll be teaching, which is intro to sociology. Honestly, for a lot of students, including myself, you know, in undergrad, I mean, it's it's a very popular course because of, you know, kind of what you just described. It allows us as faculty to give students essentially the tools to be able to grapple with some of the very troubling phenomena that we're seeing currently and that we've seen in in this country thus far. So I think that it gives me a great opportunity to kind of pass that along. But I think that the real work will be for the students and choosing, you know, how to use the tools that we give them to make choices and to understand 
social inequality and how, you know, we can make this place better for everyone and, you know, improve the quality of lives of those who are marginalized. Is it intimidating? I mean, it, it's intimidating, I think, for a lot of people to go before students in any circumstances. But the thing that rests on your shoulder right now that you're turning over to them to rest on their shoulders really big. Are you feeling the weight of that? Somewhat. And, uh, you know, as far as it being intimidating, of course, I mean, if anyone in academia says that <laughs> they've never been intimidated, then, you know, they're probably lying. But I think that it's mainly intimidating for those of us who, you know, take this position very seriously. Now, it's not to say that I don't think I can do a good job. I think that I can do a great job, you know, just simply based on what I've been able to learn. And honestly, my social position, I come from a somewhat unique social position when it comes to faculty in this country. I believe less than 6% of all PhDs in this country are Black. So we also know that when it comes to diversity in the classroom, particularly at the head of the classroom, oftentimes the perspectives are improved and enriched when we have you know, diversity. So I think that I'll be able to add that. So I'm not necessarily intimidated in the sense that I don't think I'll be able to do a good job, but just measuring up what this can mean for someone who maybe hasn't been exposed to sociology. I mean, many of us weren't exposed to sociology before college. So Keeping that in mind, I think that it's an important task, it's an important job, but more than anything, I'm just excited about the opportunity. I'm really looking forward to it. A lot of people are very focused on racial disparities in policing right now, and for very good reason, but there are other disparities that are also exceptionally pernicious in our society. You study racial disparities in health, which... I think a lot of people haven't considered, but it's well established that racial minorities receive a different and often lesser standard of care than non-minorities do. What makes this area the one that you decided you wanted to dedicate your time and passion to? Yeah. So I guess just to give you a little bit of background for how I landed in this field, I guess, as a child, I noticed that a lot of my relatives were you know, either passing away, you know, before the age of, you know, 65 or 60, or they were dealing with common ailments, you know, such as diabetes, stroke, gout, you know, all of these conditions were quite common among my family members. And so it kind of began there for me, watching the suffering, but not just that, also contextualizing it and realizing, wow, you know, the quality of life once we hit a certain age, it's not optimal, it's suboptimal. So once I became a little older, I realized, oh, there's this thing in St. Louis where I'm from called residential segregation, you know, where if you live on the north side of Delmar Boulevard, for instance, they call it the Delmar Divide. The racial makeup there is mostly black. The education level, the socioeconomic position levels are not, you know, as high as say maybe if you were on the south side of Delmar, where it's majority white. Many of the residents there have college degrees, et cetera, et cetera. There's a stark contrast in health outcomes as well. And I can actually bring this to present day where we see a higher number of concentration of COVID-19 positive cases among the residents in the north side of the city versus the south side. And that's not random. That is 
something that we've noticed in this city for several decades. So when I took that into account and I took into account where most of my family's from and the quality of life that I've witnessed them endure, once they hit a certain age, I realized, okay, there's something going on. Once I got older, like I said, got to undergrad at Morehouse College and took intro to sociology, that's kind of where I was given the tools to assess things sociologically. And I think that once I realized, oh, okay, with a sociology degree, I'll be able to do research, I'll be able to teach and focus all of my energy on these areas, that's kind of what led me to want to take up this charge. And I think that, you know, we need more people studying health disparities along racial and ethnic lines. But I also want to point out that it's not necessarily a new phenomenon for us to be calling out racism as a fundamental cause of health as a social determinant. I think that if we can point to many areas such as healthcare, for instance, where Black Americans are less likely to receive pain medication, for example, in the ER compared to white Americans. Just little stuff like that. If we can point to those types of outcomes, it's clear that racism, whether it's on the interpersonal level or institutional level, it's clear that it is a social determinant of health and that unfair treatment is a key factor for these outcomes that we see, particularly when we look at risk for mortality or life expectancy and how Black Americans tend to have lower life expectancy, even even controlling for socioeconomic position and other factors. So to me, it's very important for us to not forget that even though there are less, I guess, acute experiences of discrimination, such as police violence or police brutality against Black Americans, there are still many other ways which our life chances are being stymied. In the healthcare realm and in the health realm, it's not always, you know, like blatantly obvious. It's very systematic. It can be subtle. You've written that it can be vicarious. And I wanted to dive into that a little bit. Can you unpack this concept of vicarious racism? Thank you for bringing that up because I think that in so many cases, I mean, we can look at research, for instance, there's this mountain of evidence that suggests that discrimination, for instance, when individuals report discrimination or they've experienced discrimination, they're likely to also report poorer health outcomes. But we don't necessarily have that same amount of evidence to show the secondhand effects of discrimination, but we know that they still exist. I'll take one of the larger examples that I like to use that actually spurred um, my research for my dissertation, which is the story of Erica Garner, who's the daughter of Eric Garner. And essentially she passed away at the age of 27 from complications, you know, that they attributed to pre-existing conditions. But as a stress researcher, I have no doubt in my mind that her pre-existing conditions were exacerbated by the stress that she endured as she relentlessly fought to attain justice for her father's murder at the hands of police in New York. And just to kind of give you a brief overview of what people mean when they say vicarious racism, essentially, we know that we don't live in a vacuum. So the stress 
and the adversity that an individual experiences are likely to affect the people with whom they're closely tied to. Last year, you were co-author of a study that looked at the association between people's exposure to stressful life events and the health mm-hmm. of their significant others, this this kind of vicarious process of effects. Yes. Black and white differences in stress and health are relatively well established, but this is an area that hadn't been well explored before. Yeah. So um, in research, we kind of pride ourselves on bringing something new to the table. So as a younger graduate student, because I started this paper back in, I would say, the end of 2017. But as a younger graduate student, I was noticing this huge gap in the literature, kind of like I just brought up, how we have all this evidence and all this research about direct experiences with stress and particularly racism-related stress. But we don't have that same empirical support for the indirect effects of racism-related stress. I should mention my mentor, Dr. Robin Brown, she had access to data that was collected based on partners and how people, particularly older adults in a community sample, were experiencing stress. So and this was data from Miami-Dade, right? Absolutely. And um, I believe it was collected between the years of 2000 and 2001. So it's a little older, but essentially what I was able to do was I was able to look at the effects of partner stress on individuals and see how that impacted their self-rated health. And this was fascinating. You didn't find a statistically significant association among most respondents, but you did find it among the Black participants in the study. What was going on there? So like you said, I noticed racial differences in the outcomes for most of the groups that were included in the study. There was not a statistically significant association between their partner's stress and their self-rated health outcomes. Well, except for the Black Americans. But I want to talk about just really briefly why that might be. I think that most of the research on marriage partnerships will suggest that marriage, it can be a protective factor, particularly for men when it comes to self-rated health. People who are married live longer. They have fewer chronic diseases, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what I was essentially assessing here was something that's traditionally thought of as a protective factor for most individuals may not be protective for Black Americans and other minorities. That's initially what I thought I was looking at. And to be even more transparent, I thought that the discrimination variables would also play a role in that, but they did not. Instead, it was just the major life events, which are you know what we would consider general life stressors. But I do think it's important to note that even though I didn't get a statistically significant association for discrimination, I have reason to believe that a lot of the major life event stressors that are included in that measure could be patterned by racism in another way. Because Um, those are vicarious too. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, if your partner, for instance, is experiencing issues with the job or perhaps they had a traumatic experience or something like that, it's not to say it couldn't still be tied to racism, but even kind of letting that go, that theory about racism being a main 
key contributor to those outcomes, I still think it's important to just note that when it comes to adversity, and we know that Black Americans are disproportionately overexposed to social stressors, I think it's just important to note here that for Black Americans, the stress of one's partner's own adversity could impact your self-rated health over time. Now, granted, I want to clear up a couple things. One, this is not to suggest that marriage or partnership is bad for Black Americans. (laughs) You know, I don't want that to be something that people take away from this particular study. What it suggests, however, is that the overexposure to social stressors may not be buffered by marriage for Black Mm -hmm. Americans. That's all it suggests. In my opinion, this is still very preliminary data and very preliminary analyses. I think that you might find even more if you look at, say, for instance, the gender of the respondent. You know, I didn't control for that. It could be that Black women who are married to men or Black men may suffer the most when it comes to self-rated health and taking on those, you know, the secondhand effects of those stressors. It could be um, because I also didn't control for same-sex partnerships. I mean, there are a lot of factors. I also want to Uh, just kind of put it out there again that this was a sample of older adults. So they were Mm -hmm. in their 60s and older. So I don't necessarily know how this mechanism might work for, say, younger adults. And perhaps, you know, it could even be going back to why I didn't find a statistically significant association for the racism component. It could be that At the turn of the century, you know, 2000, 2001, those older Black adults may have viewed discrimination, you know, as, I don't want to say less of a problem, but if you think about being 60 or 65. These people lived through the civil rights movement. Exactly. You know, so it could be that for them, uh, discrimination may be less of a stressor than just, you know, life's general Uh, psychosocial stressors that everyone experiences. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I think that more analyses, more inquiry is warranted here. Is that the next step for you? Are you going to look at this through other sets of data? Absolutely. This paper was kind of like a start for me, a starting point, because I'm still very fascinated with this idea of the secondhand effects of stressors, particularly racism-related stress, because, you know, like I said, I mean, just from the standpoint of we have a ton of literature already on how those personal experiences of discrimination impact us, but we need a lot more evidence for what we believe to be true, which is that the secondhand effects of discrimination also impact the well-being of Black Americans. But as of now, we don't have as much evidence to support that. So I think that it's you know it's a really cool opportunity to be in this cohort of scholars who are taking on this research challenge right now. A lot of your students at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, are Black students. They have felt this. They have lived with a lot of this. It is a different way of thinking about discrimination, I think, for a lot of people. But you said that even as a young boy, you knew, you could see, you could tell there was something that was happening within your own family, this vicarious thing. Do you think your students have a sense of this already? Or when they're exposed to this, do you think they'll be 
surprised at the connectedness and the interconnectedness of the stresses of living in a discriminatory society having these pernicious effects on other parts of their lives. To be honest, I don't think that they will be, you know, surprised. I think that this isn't necessarily a new concept, you know, vicarious racism. In fact, you know, it was talked about Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum. She discussed it in one of her books. I think that was before the 90s. Other Black scholars were discussing it in the 90s. I reference Dr. Harrell's racism-related stress framework. She defines vicarious racism. This was in the year 2000. But I think that what I'm going to be able to do is help provide empirical evidence for it. But again, I don't think that anyone will be shocked. I think that most people, particularly Black Americans, when they, for instance, witness the killings of George Floyd and, you know, others. I know many folks are still upset over Breonna Taylor's, you know, murder and how she hasn't gotten justice. Her family hasn't gotten justice. People are impacted by that and they know that they are. I think just empirically, we don't necessarily have as much evidence as we would like, but we're working on it. And I think that once we bring it to light, it won't necessarily be a shocker for the people who experience it. I think that they're very aware of how it's impacting their well-being. Because if you attack or discriminate against someone from their racial group, you know, and they're a member of that group, Mm -hmm. uh, social identity theory would suggest that they're going to feel the impact of that. They're going to feel the weight of that because they identify as someone from that same group. So vicariously, you can feel that attack as well. How about for your other students? I mean, this is the things that you're talking about are subtle. They're nuanced. They demand more question. They demand more study. You know, these aren't a video that stand as really stark evidence of prejudice in the United States. And you and your co-authors wrote that a lot of the results, you know, they simply make sense in the context of racial disparities in America. In that way, is it a little easier to take maybe for students who are resistant to the idea that racism is still so pervasive in our society? I think that what we've noticed over the past many decades is that there will always be the group who opposes. And perhaps our focus shouldn't necessarily be on trying to turn that group. You know, many scholars would argue that that may be a lost cause. But I think that It's more so, at least for me as a professor, it's more so about helping those who maybe are on the fence, who want to learn, who are open to the idea that racism is a social determinant of health. I think that those folks are going to be more so my focus. And I'm trying to sound as objective as possible, but I think that it's kind of difficult to ignore the facts. And I have plenty of them to share. Many other scholars do as well that will at least, like I said, give them the tools. And if they want to use them, I think that they will benefit from them. I think that they will become more enlightened and empowered. There's this phenomenon that people sort of call, if you can see it, you can be it. And you noted earlier that a very small percentage of professors in America are Black. What does it mean to you to be able to be that person for your students starting this first faculty position in your career? Well, it means a lot to me. I tell people all the time, or I never saw myself as, you know, Dr. Moody or anything like that (laughs) before, I would say, my junior year of 
college, maybe my senior year, honestly, you know, so I was about 21. And I think that's a significant time, you know, in development, but it's also like a crazy amount of years to go without realizing that you can be something or do something. And it's largely just due to the fact that, you know, growing up in St. Louis, I didn't see a bunch of black PhDs, let alone black male PhDs. So I think for me, and I've been told this by others, but I also believe it that by being in the environment, and like you said, being someone that they can see, particularly the young black men, I think that it will serve as an example, but hopefully not just for the future path to academia. I mean, whatever path it is that they want to strive for, I think that my story can also lend itself to, you know, to inspiring that if I get the chance to mentor them in that capacity. But yeah, I take it very seriously. I'm the first PhD in my family. So I'm hoping to, you know, maybe inspire others to know that, you know, hey, you can definitely do it with a bunch of dedication and discipline and, and, you know, hard work. But I also think that it's a privilege as well. I was afforded some opportunities along the way that others may not be afforded in the same way. And my goal by being in this space is to hopefully help change that and knock down some of those barriers so that we can have more, like I said, diversity at the head of the classroom. Because, I mean, findings have shown that when you have more diversity, it brings everyone up. I mean, everyone's learning experiences is just so much better. That's Miles Moody. He is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where he'll be teaching his first classes this fall. Miles, good luck. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can catch us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Echo have big ideas.